begin with why I am not, whoops, hold on one second, and there we go, why I am not a Jew. And uh, in the process of this, as I was thinking through how to write the lesson and how to deal with it, I realized that it's not just why I'm not a Jew, but I really ought to be saying why I'm not a Jew or am I? And, um, okay, now we're going to make this go a little bit better. Hold on one sec. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, in the process of this, one of the most important things that we need to do is we need to get our terminology right. <clears throat> I am a lawyer by trade. And as a lawyer, words make a huge difference in what we do. If a word is defined properly or improperly, it makes a difference in a contract meaning one thing or another thing. It makes a difference in, in testimony meaning one thing or another thing. So as lawyers, we're taught to zoom in on words, what they are and what they mean. It just comes very natural to us. And I tell you that because I was um, uh, reminded of a lunch that I had. <clears throat> I don't know, it's been probably about seven or eight years ago, uh, maybe a little bit longer. But I was uh, on a hunting trip and I had taken a Supreme Court justice who's now passed away, Antonin Scalia hunting in South Texas. And on Sunday, we were eating lunch, and there were six of us around the lunch table. And Justice Scalia is seated to my right, and and he said uh, uh, in the lunch conversation, he said, Lonesome Dove, what was better, the movie or the book? He just assumed we had both seen the movie and watched the book. That was not even up for discussion. So starting with the fellow on the other side of, of, of Justice Scalia, it went around in a circle. It came finally to me. And my reply was this. I said, you know, I think I'm going to say I like the book better. And he said, why is that? And I said, well, I, I love the movie. I thought Augustus McRae and Woodrow Call were just played so well by, by uh, Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones. I, I loved the characters. And I loved them so much that that's why I read the book. I wanted more of them. And the book had everything the movie had, but it had more. And I liked it so much, I read the prequel. And then I read the sequel. And I couldn't even get the word sequel out when Scalia interrupted me. And he said, wait, 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 wait. What did you just say? I said, I liked it so much, I read the prequel. And then I, he said, stop. Prequel's not a word. And I said, yes, it is. And he said, no, no, no. He said, that's not a word. And I said, yes, it is. And he said, well, what does it mean? I said, in a series of things, it means the one that came before. And he says, no, no, it's made up. And I said, no, I'm not making it up. He says, yeah, yeah, because that comes from uh, uh, the pre part comes from the Latin uh, uh, prefix, which means uh, before, and the quill part comes from the Latin sequitur, which means after. And you can't just chop sequitur in half and take the back half and put it with pre. That doesn't work. Now, Justice Scalia's father was a Latin teacher, so he comes by this a little fair. And I looked at him, I said, well, Mr. Latin, it's in the dictionary, 
And he looked at me and he paused. He says, uh, I'll bet it's in Webster's third. That doesn't count as a dictionary. I said, no, it's in the Oxford English Dictionary. How's that work on you? And of course, I'm bluffing. I have no clue. I mean, like I've memorized the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> he says, it's, it's, in the, it's in the OED. That's Oxford English Dictionary. It's in the OED. I said, yeah. He says, you're bluffing. And I said, uh, I said, oh, it's in there. It's just playing the bluff to the end. He says, do you know how to do that Google thing? And I said, yes. He said, you can do that Google thing and we'll find out. I said, okay. I get my computer. I get hooked up to the Internet. No easy feat where we were staying. I get hooked up to the Internet. I Google it. It's in the Oxford English Dictionary. Hmm. So... Of course, I'm acting like that's no big deal. I've memorized it after all. I knew it was in there. And uh, uh, I said, uh, it's in there. And I said, uh, what do you think? And he looked at me and he just shakes his head in disgust. And he says, this is a sad day when the Oxford English Dictionary has gone the way of Webster's third. <laughs> Cut to the chase uh, uh, after the, the, the weekend was over. Uh, he got back to D.C., I got back to Houston. But I did a little research and found out the Oxford English Dictionary was actually in the process of doing their fourth edition. So I got the editor's name, the general editor, and I wrote him a letter. I blind copied uh, Justice Scalia. And the letter said, Sir, it's come to my attention you're doing the fourth edition as the gatekeeper of the Queen's English and all that is holy and right about her language, I would ask you to please take out this word prequel, which is basically a linguistic recombinant DNA gene splice of two Latin words that just has created this aberration that's going to corrupt everything. And uh, I, I said, uh, uh, you know, there's no greater court I could appeal to, or I suspect they would grant certiorari which is a polite way of saying the U.S. Supreme Court would reverse you if they could. And, uh, of course, Scalia is getting to read this, right, because I blind copied him. And uh, uh, I get a letter back from the guy. And he says, uh, he says, I'm sorry, I'm not the gatekeeper. I just call it like I see it. The language is in use in the English vernacular, and so it stays in the dictionary. But your letter made some legal sense, and if you write Black's Law Dictionary, you can probably keep it out there. So I took the letter and went up to Washington, D.C., and I was having lunch with Justice Scalia in his chambers, and I showed it to him. He said, you don't have to show it to me. And he grabbed my letter. It was on his desk. He says, I'm writing my own to him. <laughs> Definitions are very important, and we lawyers tend to take it to an extreme. But having said that, prequel is a word, uh, having said that, I think in the question of why I'm not a Jew or am I, the first thing we've got to do is ask a very simple question, and that is, what is a Jew? What does it mean to be Jewish? Now, you might be saying, well, that's a gimme. I mean, after all, we know so many people who are Jewish. I love music. Look at all the Jewish musicians. Bob Dylan is Jewish. Paul Simon is Jewish. Leonard Cohen, God rest his soul, is Jewish. Mark Knopfler is Jewish. 
We've got all of these Jewish musicians. We don't have any problem with that. Actors, Harrison Ford, Jewish. Uh, Natalie Portman, Jewish. Billy Crystal, Jewish. We could go on and on. We could talk about Jewish writers. Saul Bellow, Franz Kafka, Ayn Rand, Moore. We could talk about Jewish scientists who made the cover of Time magazine. We have uh, uh, Jonas Salk. We have uh, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, the nuclear guy. We have uh, Albert Einstein, who also made the cover of Time, I might add. Whoops, there we go. So what does it mean? Oh, my, my PowerPoint's messed up. Ignore Dot Man on the right. We'll get to him in a minute. So what does it mean to be Jewish? It might mean to be a citizen of Israel. And if that's what you mean when you say, are you Jewish, then my answer is pretty easy. Nope, I'm not a a citizen of Israel. I'm not Jewish. Maybe you mean, are you a cultural Jew? Do you adhere to some of the Jewish culture? Do you keep kosher? Or do you bar mitzvah your son or bat mitzvah your daughter? No, my daughters didn't have a bat mitzvah and my son didn't have a bar mitzvah and I don't keep kosher. I mix milk and meat and, 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 you know, the best pizza in the world is one that's got pepperoni on it. And so I'm not a, a, a cultural Jew, if that's what you mean. No. Now we get to dot man. Some might say, but are you a genetic Jew? Because when they mean Jew, they're not talking about someone who's a citizen of Israel. They're not talking about someone who just keeps cultural Jewish uh, uh, um, marks. Um, they're, they're talking about someone who is born ethnically a Jew, genetically Jewish. Well, no, not to my knowledge. That generally is considered traced through the maternal line. And I don't think mom was Jewish. I don't think her mom was Jewish. I can't find any Jews going back that way through the the maternal line in our family, or the paternal for that matter. But even on that, there's questions. What does it mean to be a genetic Jew? Did you know? I'm going to get on a soapbox for a moment. Some people argue whether or not there is a genetic Jew. I believe there is. I believe there is because I believe the idea behind the genetic Jew is that God called Abraham out from Ur. Abraham was one of many Middle Eastern people. Somewhere around 2000 B.C., God calls Abraham out of Ur and he takes him to Canaan and he ensures that Abraham understands that the land of Canaan is going to be given to Abraham and his offspring. And a promise is made to Abraham. Genesis 15 relates the promise this way. God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number the stars, that's how many your offspring will be. And that promise to Abraham was made multiple times. In fact, it was made so much that Abraham got concerned because he didn't have a kid. And his wife, Sarah is well past childbearing age. Way past childbearing age. So they're sitting there wondering, well, you know, how's God going to pull this off? So Sarah tells Abraham, I've got a maidservant, her name's Hagar, go into Hagar, and, and maybe you can have the offspring through her. Abraham does so. 
Hagar gives birth to a son, Ishmael. But that wasn't God's promise. God's promise was going to be through Abraham and Sarah. Sarah laughs at the idea, but ultimately gets pregnant and has a son. And Abraham gives uh, 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 has a son. The son is Isaac, who then is a half-brother of Ishmael. Ishmael's mom is uh, rubbing... Uh, um, that's not a fair way to say it because that's meaning it's her fault. And it's not necessarily that it was her fault. Let's just say Ishmael and his mother were not a welcome presence for Sarah and her son Isaac. So Ishmael and Hagar get sent off. And the Muslims and Arabs will tell you that, that, that Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nation. Meanwhile, Isaac continues, and the promise that God made to Abraham, God makes to Isaac. Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau. The promise is then made to Jacob of those two children. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob and his family and the 12 sons, they go down into Egypt during a time of famine. Joseph has paved the way for them, one of the sons. While they are in Egypt, the, uh, the, the generations continue to breed and to breed and to breed. And ultimately, a multitude of Israelites. These are not Jews yet. These are Israelites. There is a difference in terminology. A number of Israelites proliferate in Egypt. Moses ultimately comes takes them out of Egypt into the promised land. Scholars differ on whether they're early date Exodus, which means it happened in the 1400s, or late date Exodus, which means it happened in the 1200s BCE. I'm a late date Exodus guy. So in the 1200s BCE, Moses leads the people through the promised land. And the 12 tribes get various territories, except the tribe of Levi. The Levites are priests that are dispersed throughout all of the territories. And that's what happens. And Israel continues as this conglomerate, not really a kingdom, but a, a loose federation of people who are ruled by judges here and there periodically as God calls those judges into that ministry. So this is what it's happened. And at that point in time, the people decide, hey, we want a king like everybody else. God says, tisk tisk, you shouldn't be doing this. But the people are insistent. So they make Saul their first king. That doesn't work out too well. David's the next king. That works out pretty good. Solomon is the next king. Still going pretty good. Solomon dies. And the 12 tribes, the kingdom of Israel, is divided. Because not all will follow the son of Solomon as king. So Rehoboam and Jeroboam take different parts of the kingdom. The southern kingdom is basically the tribe of Judah. It's got the lands of Simeon and Benjamin, but they're really minor players. So that's the tribe of Judah and also called the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom continues to be called either the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Samaria. It's got most of the tribes. 
That is until Tiglath Pileser, the Assyrian, and Sargon II come down and conquer northern kingdom. Now we're into the 700s. So the northern kingdom gets conquered and those ten tribes, nine tribes, get dispersed. Some just become part of the people. Some get moved. Some flee to Egypt. Some flee to Judah. But for several hundred years, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, continues. Ultimately, in the 6th century B.C., Babylon comes and conquers Judah. Carts off those that they cart off. Some assimilate into the local just area people. Some go to Egypt. And they're gone for a couple of generations until a new king allows the Jewish people. And now we've got Jewish people to come back and settle. They're called Jewish because they were the tribe of Judah, by and large. So they come back and now we've got the Jewish people who reestablished the Jewish nation. That is, until ultimately it gets destroyed and they get carted off and, and dispersed uh, by the Romans. Uh, it happens twice, uh, in 70 and then again in 120s A.D. So, that's the story of first Israelites and then Jews. Now, the reason I say, is there a genetic Jew? We know that biblical story. But there is a huge movement in the world trying to destroy the truth of the biblical story. It might shock you to find out that especially with all of the political overtones where Israel claims that they have a right to the lands where they are in the Middle East because God gave them to Abraham, while the Palestinians are saying, no, that's our lands, with all of the political tension, it might not surprise you to find out that there are people who deny Abraham even existed. They deny whether Moses existed. They deny whether the Exodus took place. What might also surprise you is some of the people deeply entrenched in this denial are Jewish. So, you look up Wikipedia, look up Jew. Here's what you read. Modern archaeology has largely discarded the historicity, in other words, whether or not it's history, of the patriarchs. Patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes. They've discarded the historicity of the patriarchs and of the Exodus story. Footnote 53. Footnote 53 is an excerpt, uh, I mean a reference to an article by Dr. Deaver. Uh, William Deaver from Arizona State uh, uh, wrote a book. That's not the contention of the book as I remember reading it. The contention of the book is rather that there's no archaeological history that verifies such things. It doesn't mean that they didn't happen. Okay, I mean, the, the, but that's a side note. 
with it being reframed as constituting the Israelites' inspiring national myth narrative. Here's the theory. Israel needs a national myth to keep itself together while it's in its Babylonian captivity. So they come up with this whole story, and it's all made up. The Israelites and their culture, according to the modern archaeological account, did not overtake the region by force, but instead branched out of the Canaanite peoples and culture through the development of a distinct, monolatristic, and later monotheistic religion centered on Yahweh, one of the ancient Canaanite deities. Okay, this is this is the understanding and belief of a few scholars. This is not the preponderance of scholastic view. This is a minority view that somehow makes its way onto the Wikipedia page. Janet Seifert got mad over it and she edited it yesterday. They took her edits out. Which ticked me off. So I got on and I edited it. They took my edits out. My edits are right. I can't speak to Janice. I didn't read them. But they were probably right too. And I'm really ticked off about it. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. But I'm going to do something. There is such a thing as a genetic Jew. There is such a... I, I, look, the Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, 12 trunks, 12 sides, all of this kind of stuff. That's just an example of, of, of what goes on in this world. By the way, think twice before you cite Wikipedia. I mean, this is just outrageous to me. Here. That's called the Merneptah Stela, S-T-E-L-E, Stela. A stela is a carved stone. Merneptah was a pharaoh of Egypt. And after some of his adventures where he has some accomplishments, Merneptah has this stone carved on his behalf, 1208 B-C-E. Now this isn't something, gee, we just made up. Sir Flanders Petrie is the very first preeminent in the modern age archaeologist, Egyptologist. He discovered this in the late 1800s. It's in the British Museum, oh no, the Cairo Museum now, in Cairo. I've seen it. You can see it if you go there. I mean, this is not open for debate. 1208 BCE. 1208 BC, Christian language. That is when this was carved. That's Merneptah's victories. Here's a segment of it. I don't know how well you read your hieroglyphics. But I know it's a little fuzzy, so I've put it down here for you. That says Israel. It's our oldest archaeological recognition of the name of Israel. 1208 B.C. Bronze Age culture. 
Israel is recognized. See the three little hash marks down there below the two people? That's designating in Egyptian speak a confederation of peoples as opposed to a kingdom. It's a collection of peoples, Israel. It stands in contrast to the line before which talks about Ashkelon, the kingdom, Gezer, the kingdom. If there was a ruler, it gets a kingdom designation. If it's just a bunch of loose people, it gets the people of designation. Israel were a bunch of loose people. That's the biblical account, by the way. In the promised land, Canaan, which is where Menephtah came up against them. I mean, that's there. It just is. Israel is laid waste and his seed is not, is what the line actually says. Now, some scholars want to come in and say, well, you would normally read that Israel, but let's read it as something else because we don't think Israel existed then. Well, okay, but you're making that up. I mean, it reads Israel. That's the Egyptian way you would write Israel. It, it, the foremost Egyptologist of that time period, that's considered still the Ramesside period, is a man named Ken Kitchen in Woolton, England. And he's the guy. He's like 150 years old, but he's still the guy. And I've sat in his living room. And I've had him redraw all the hieroglyphics and he just explain it in very clear detail. Ann and Bill Young sat in his living room. And it's not, this is not open really to debate. So anyway, there is such a thing as a genetic Jew that I could spend weeks on and have a good time. Um, I really just want to cross-examine whoever it is that keeps taking off our edits on the page. But regardless, I'm not a genetic Jew. There's a fourth category, a religious Jew. Now, that's a tough category in and of itself. That's like uh, talking about someone being a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, there's lots of different sizes, varieties. They come in all shapes and colors. Religious Jews is really tough to define. If we were to look today at what are the major groups of subdivisions, at least in the United States, of Jews. And from a religious perspective, the blue, 12%, are Orthodox. An Orthodox Jew believes in the Torah, the first five books, the law, as being of divine origin and binding and unalterable. They still apply, you still live by them. The most... Um, um, careful of the Orthodox, the Hasidic community are the ones who will wear the hats, have the the the, the apron, the tefillin, the, the, the whole thing. But these are people who live very carefully on the spectrum. If you go to the opposite end of the spectrum, the 41% are Reform Jews. Reform Jews find the ideas in the Torah important but not the actual practices. 
It's kind of uh, the, the, the ideas are ones that we reinterpret into today's culture. And then in the middle are these conservatives who are a little more careful like the Orthodox, but, but also a little more carefree like the Reform. That's my language, and I don't mean to be insulting to anybody on any of that. I have dear friends truly in each of these camps except um, uh, the Orthodox camp. I, I know Orthodox Jews, but I'm not as close to them. Now, the conservatives might keep kosher. They, they'll bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, although some of the, the reform will as well. Um, they'll keep some of the law, they're, but they're not as persnickety about it all. So what, what about that? Well, those are today's, some of today's sects. You can still see that 18% are other. Uh, there are Messianic Jews, completed Jews, that worship, um, that are Jews, that follow Jesus as Messiah. Um, now, if you go back 2,000 years and look at the Jewish sects, they were a little bit different. In first century Judaism, you had Pharisees. The Pharisees came out of the movement that happened when, uh, um, after Alexander the Great conquered a lot of the, the world in fourth century BCE, a lot of the world became Hellenized, which is a fancier way of saying Greekized. They, they just became, they, they took on Greek culture and Greek ideas and the Greek language became the language of the day. Even in Israel, that became an issue. And they tried to abolish the monotheism and the, the Jewish religion and substitute for the Greek religion. And the, the Maccabee brothers stood up against this and revolted and threw off the yoke of the ruling authorities and kept Judaism pure. And the Hasidim, the, the, the people who fought to keep re, the, the religion of Israel pure, are the forefathers of what by the first century are called Pharisees. The, the, there's the sect, S-E-C-T, of Pharisees. The word for sect in the Greek is heresis. So this is the heresis, the sect, of the Pharisees. They weren't the only sect. They were hardcore. That was Rabbi Paul. The New Testament uh, Rabbi Paul who becomes the apostle. Um, then there were the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees, they were kind of the, the rich hoity-toity ones. They were the ones who administered the government by and large. They were the ones who were in relationship with the Romans. They didn't believe in an afterlife like the Pharisees did. They wouldn't go with anything beyond the first five books of the Torah. They are another sect, heresis, of the time period. You can read about them, of course, in the New Testament, but you can read about them in Josephus. He is the Jewish historian of the first century who wrote the histories of the Jewish people. There was another sect called the Essenes. They were off kind of by themselves. They were they, the, a lot of scholars believe they were the, the community that put the, together the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. But the Essenes were kind of this really ultra-careful community, basically just of men, and basically that means you die out. There was a fourth sect of Judaism in the first century called the Nazarenes, also called the Way. 
in Antioch, by the middle of the first century, they get called Christians. Because they followed Jesus of Nazareth, understanding him to be the long-awaited Messiah. So this becomes, in fact, if you look in Acts 24, 5 and 14, you'll, and I, I don't want to get lost time-wise, so I'm just going to leave it. You can research it. You can read all of this in the lesson if you want to download it. I've written this and more. But you can read in there that Jesus' followers are called a heresis, a sect, just like the Pharisees, just like the Sadducees, just like the Essenes. It was a fourth group of people, and there were a lot of them. A lot of first century Jews were absolutely convinced that Jesus was Messiah. By the way, Hebrew word Messiah, that's our anglicized version, Mashiach, translated into Greek becomes Christos, or Christ. Jesus, his last name was not Christ. Wasn't even his middle name. That was a title that was given to him by the Jewish believers who saw Jesus, Yeshua, as Mashiach, as Messiah. So, within the context of all of these different views, how do we decide what a religious Jew is so that I can determine, am I one or not? Well, here's what I decided to do. Maimonides was Moses Maimonides. What a great first name, Moses Maimonides. Was the preeminent medieval Jewish scholar. He lived in the 1200s. He was, um, uh, 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 or died in the 1200s. I think he was born in the 1100s. He was uh, a philosopher. He was a doctor. In fact, read some of his doctor writings. He wasn't a half bad doctor for 1200 A.D. And he was a rabbi. He is still accorded within Judaism immense respect and is almost the defining rod. Okay, what's your position on this? Well, do you agree with Maimonides on that or not? Do you agree with Maimonides on that or not? He's the, the source, if you will, from which others measure where they sit on the theological spectrum. So Maimonides gave out 13 principles of faith. These are the 13 principles that set you apart as being Jewish, according to Maimonides, a religious Jew. And I decided to take those 13 principles and look at them and determine, am I a Jew or not, from a religious perspective? So let's look at them. Principle number one, by the way, if you're looking at your watch thinking, E, 13, he doesn't have but about 12 minutes to go. That's not even a minute of one. And I know Lanier, he can't go that fast. Or at least he won't. You're right. We're not going to cover all of them today. We'll cover a couple. And we'll continue on this next week, God willing. Principle number one. The first principle is belief in a creator. A being who is himself complete in existence. And who caused all that exists. So the first principle of a Jew is believing, according to Maimonides, a religious Jew, is believing in a creator as a being 
complete within himself in existence. Didn't need anyone else to become complete. Didn't need anything else to become complete. Is complete and a total within himself. And who caused then everything that exists. This is automatically different than the Hinduism and the Buddhism that we've looked at that says that God even exists within all of the things created. This is against animism that says God's in the wood that's on the stage. It says God is an entity within himself. That's the first principle. I agree. I don't fuss with that one at all. That's the teaching of the rabbi slash apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, 9, in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Let's look at those for just a moment and see if, if that's not real consistent. We start with Ephesians 3, 9. Paul begins and says, where did I put my pen? Hold on. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, that's for Messiah Jesus, on behalf of you, Goyim. <laughs> that's us, huh? Oh, you can't see it? Here, let me see. Where are we? Hold on, hold on, hold on. There, there we go. A prisoner for Messiah Jesus on behalf of you, Goyim. Goyim plural, Gentiles. Um, that's actually the Greek word is ethnos, but uh, that's the, and singular is a goy. So I have a friend who went and spoke at a synagogue and he said, he's goy. And he said, I know what you're saying. What's a nice goy like you doing in a place like this? Um, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, Messiah Jesus, on behalf of you goyim, you Gentiles, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Paul's responsible for something here. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. God revealed it to Paul. Paul started out totally opposed to the idea Jesus was Messiah. In fact, he was all for imprisoning and killing people who were trying to disturb Jew Jewishness. Remember, Paul's a Pharisee the Pharisees got their start from the movement that protected Judaism from just becoming a religion of the Goyim. And so Paul thought he was overly zealous and devoted to the Lord when he tried to destroy the people of the sect of the Nazarenes. He, but God met him on the road. He does a 180. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of the Messiah, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God in the Old Testament that's constantly revealing the will of God and the Word of God to others. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs Members of the same body. Now look what he says. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. To preach to the goyim, to the Gentiles, 
the unsearchable riches of Messiah and to bring to light for everyone what's the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God created all things. It's a mystery that existed within God. God had complete and total existence within himself. Weigh this with Colossians 1, 16 and 17, where the same Paul is writing. Yeah, that's not the passage I want. Okay, don't weigh it against what he says in there, but it's what he says in there. Um, uh, without going through the whole book, unless someone wants to shout out for me where I'm missing this. 3, 16 and 17. Thank you. Eh. What? Ah, look. We don't have time. It is 1, 16. Oh, I'm in Philippians. Okay. I started to say, golly. I mean, I, I really thought I remembered this. Yes, this is it. Thank you. And it starts in verse 15. Colossians 1. Boy, I felt like an idiot. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus. The Greek word for image is ikonos. He's the icon. He's the image of the invisible God. Firstborn of all creation. Firstborn not in terms of he's born first like a race, but uh, the preeminent. The 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 highest, the, the, the top, the creme de la creme of, of, that's ever been born. Um, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. And that's what Maimonides says of God. I believe that to be true. We go back to the PowerPoint. I believe in the first principle. I'm so far one for 13. Look at principle number two. The second principle centers on the unity of God, that God is one. Now, a lot of people will look at Christianity and say, ah, oh, there's a divergent. Christianity has three gods. Oh, no. God is one. There is one God. And that's the Christian belief as well. And you can't look at these Christian passages. James 2.19. In James 2.19, James says, look, you believe that God is one. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe that. I mean, it's taken for granted. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God. The Old Testament teaches that there is one God. The Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That hasn't changed. The Christian belief is that God is so hard for us to understand. God is not a supersized human. God is not a supersized human where we think of him in human terms. God is something so far beyond what we are. That he's got to, to speak to us in language we can understand. 
And so he speaks to us in a way that lets us know, number one, God is one. Not two, not three, not four, not 15. There is one God. We happen to know that God is also Father, Son, and Spirit. You will find even in the Old Testament Scriptures references to the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. You'll find references in the Old Testament. In Genesis 1, in the creation, God says, let us make man in our image. But there's only one God. Yes. Well, maybe he's talking with the angels. No, the angels don't make man. God does. You'll find passages, Isaiah 9, 6. Now I'm paranoid to even go to a passage like... My brain's not right. Look at this. Isaiah, Old Testament prophet, revealed by the Spirit of God, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord of hosts is going to give us a child. A child will be born and he will be mighty God. But there's only one God. Absolutely. That's the scriptural teaching. God is one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these are not the same. And yet they are one God. And it's hard for us to understand, but shouldn't it be? I mean, do we really think that we should understand the nature of this being God? Now, we'll tell you something else if we go back to... Principle number three is an important one here as well. God is spirit, not flesh. God's not subject to the things that affect bodies, such as movement or fatigue. When the Bible speaks of God in physical terms, walking, standing, etc., it's a metaphor. It's using the language of people. Amen. Oh, I agree with that. Jesus said the same thing in John 4. He's met the woman at Samaria, and the woman at Samaria is debating with Jesus. Well, where do you think we should worship? You Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. We think on Mount Gerizim. What do you think? Jesus' reply is, woman, you got it all wrong. God's not a physical being who's going to show up on one hill or another. God is a spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth, regardless of where we are. God is a spirit. When Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians 2, he says for us to have the same attitude Christ had, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a human. And there is a God, one God, and somehow that God has to speak in our language for us to understand. 
So in our language, for us to understand, sometimes he talks about the heart of God. God doesn't have a beating heart. Actually, the Hebrew word is referencing his, his uh, stomach, his bowels. That's where the feelings were for the Hebrews. But we translate it heart, generally. When it talks about God saying, I've engraved my people on the palms of my hand. God doesn't have a hand with a palm. He's a spirit. He's speaking in terms that we can understand. It's no different when he says that he is one. And yet he is father. He is spirit. He is Lord of hosts. He is son. Those are different and yet they're one. He's speaking in terms that we can best grasp. And that's what he does. So I agree with the first three. If you want more, we'll talk about number four next week. But here are your points for home because I'm out of time. The passage I just quoted from Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to other humans by becoming obedient to the point of death, even an embarrassing death on the cross. That's an amazing story. And I see all of us at times trying to put, build God into our image. Well, we want a God who's this way, or we want a God who's that way. Surely God's this way. I can't imagine he'd be anything otherwise, because this is what makes sense to me. I need to be a little more humble, recognize God is who God is, and, and not who I want him to be. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is greater than I know. I mean, I, I can't draw a spiritual being for you. I can't define what they're like. I can't take a spiritual being and tell you where the borders are. I can't, I, I, I don't have the ability to understand, much less speak to you about what it means to be a spiritual being. I just don't. I'm living with what I got. This is the vocabulary I've got. These are the experiences I got. I'm doing the best I can and you're doing the best you can. But God is greater than we know. And finally, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He'll have his own kingdom. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will change who you are and how you live. Mighty God. Ruler, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Alpha and Omega. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. I need all of that. I want to give God all of his titles. I don't want to diminish him. So, so far, I'm three for three. We got ten more to cover next week on am I a Jew or why I'm not a Jew, dot, 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 or am I? So, thank you. Can I bless you real quick before you leave? The Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord place his countenance upon you and be gracious to you and lift you up before him. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Mm-hmm.